Hello there, and welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group for the, from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to improve the public's awareness on infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at infectious underscore info. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that contribute to rebuilding healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as part of our post-COVID-19 recovery. My name is Lauren Taylor, and I am one of the 2021-2022 Infectious Disease Working Group co-leads. I'm a current Master of Public Health and Epidemiology student at the University of Toronto and a new Doctor of Pharmacy graduate from the University of Waterloo. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ifani Sofor, who joins me all the way from Nigeria. Dr. Sofor is a global health thought leader and a leading voice in the decolonization of global health, global health equity, health security, universal health coverage, digital health, and health research. For, or, for more than 22 years since graduating as a medical doctor, he has worked in government, international nonprofit organizations, indigenous nonprofit organizations, and the private health sector. Dr. Sofor was also declared to be a coronavirus top 100 healthcare professional globally in 2020 by Analytica and was among the top 100 most influential Africans of 2020 in the New African magazine. He's also involved in launching two successful health startups and is a senior fellow at the Aspen Institute and at George Washington University. He's also a two-time TEDx speaker, and we're really delighted to have him here today. So, Dr. Sofor, thank you again so, so much for joining me here. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your research? Hmm. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Lauren, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, uh, I think about myself, you've probably, <laughs> you probably said so much <laughs> about me. Uh, I just need to add that, you know, I'm married to Omege, and we have two daughters, uh, Yagazi and Chima Amanda. Aww. Yeah, now we have How a dog. Twelve. Uh, okay, so Yagazi is uh, is going to be twelve next month. Uh, Chima Amanda is se- is um, seven. Ah. And um, yeah, and we have a we have a twelve year old dog named Simba. Nice, that's a good name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, the research that I've done or that I do, you know, really cuts across, you know, different aspects of the, um, of of health. Um, I mean, I've done research HIV, AIDS, Ebola, health financing, um, and of recent, you know, we just concluded the research where we looked at Nigeria's preparedness, epidemic preparedness before COVID nineteen. Um, how Nigeria responded to the pandemic and what lessons Nigeria can draw going forward uh, for future pandemics. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Just going off of that, um, here in Ontario, we are just emerging from one of our many COVID-19 lockdowns. We've had our case counts have kind of gone down because we've had an increase in vaccinations. But going off your last... um, comment about your research what has the uh pandemic been like in nigeria and what do you think nigeria has learned from the pandemic going forward okay i I think nigeria um 
when you compare Nigeria and indeed African countries to, to the West, um, I think Nigeria and Africa uh, have responded better to this pandemic. And, um, and I make this assertion based on the fact that uh, the African continent really, you know, we're dealing with different epidemics all the time. Sure. Um, in fact, as we speak, you know, the, the WHO African region, based on their recent epidemiological report, you will see that um, the African continent is dealing with about 106, you know, different infectious disease outbreaks. And what that, what that does is that it provides you the capacity to handle infectious disease outbreaks, you know. And, and also when you realize that, you know, we were limited in, you know, in some of, in, in some, um, maybe the infrastructure to manage infectious disease outbreaks, it also means that we have to be a bit more proactive, you know, in responding to, in responding to the pandemic. Definitely. And, and I think if you look at our response in Nigeria, two lessons to me really stand out. The first is that, you know, we need to invest more in epidemic preparedness. Sure. You know, because, you know, we can't keep depending on, you know, on, on, the, on richer Western nations to support our epidemic response. Um, and to me, the second lesson is that the private sector is a very important partner in, you know, responding to pandemics. Um, so in Nigeria, there is this private sector coalition against COVID-19 or CACOVID for short. Um, they've raised about $80 million to support the response in Nigeria. That's unprecedented. Wow, and you know, like, yeah, and likewise in South Africa, you have the the solidarity the, the solidarity group that also private sector coalition that they've raised about two hundred and twenty five million dollars to support the response in the, in, in, oh in that God. country. Uh, yeah, and what that tells me is that there's so much opportunity within the private sector, so we sh shouldn't wait until infectious diseases happen. You know, but we can involve them, you know, to support the preparedness efforts uh, to For prevent sure. um, epidemics. Yeah. Yeah. So investing in being like proactive instead of reactive. Yeah. I yeah. think that's definitely mm -hmm. something we, we can learn here in Canada too, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And today, thank you so much for joining and kind of teaching us all a little bit about global mm -hmm. vaccine equity. Um, do you mind just telling our readers from your pers or our listeners, sorry, from your perspective, what is global vaccine equity and why is it so important? Mm. Okay, so um, I think let me start by defining equity and um, because the whole concept of equity differs from equality. Um, equity is ensuring that everybody has access to the, to the kind of care, health equity in this case, that the care they, that they need to meet their present circumstances. Right. And that's why, for me, if you look at global vaccine equity, global COVID-19 vaccine equity, what it means is that every country deserves equal access to the vaccine sure. to meet their, you know, their, their, their present circumstance. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, like, you know, um, vaccine nationalism, which, by the way, I think is a very fancy way of describing something that is bad, um, has made it in such a way that, you know, instead of talking about global vaccine equity, we're talking about global vaccine inequity. Um, and that has been described several ways by other people, even vaccine apartheid, you know, because it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't make sense, you know, what is happening with the um, global vaccine manufacture and delivery. Yeah, definitely. And um, something that I heard the other day was that no one is safe until everyone is safe. Like there's some countries 
um, like in the global north who were thinking that, oh, COVID's done now, but it's mm. not done until it's until every country has like fair access to all the vaccines until we've been able to yeah. control it in every country. And I think that's something that people are, are definitely forgetting. Mm. Um, do you have any yeah. like insights on how the current global vaccine distribution has been mm. and why mm. some countries have more or less supply? Hmm. Okay, so I, I think um, if you look at the inequity, especially with vaccine supply and the pandemic as a whole, uh, these inequities have really existed before COVID-19. What COVID-19 has done is that it has really amplified it because as it is happening, people are aware of it, unlike previously when it may be happening and nobody and nobody's aware of it. So if you compare the fact that Africa, a continent of about 1.2, 1.3 billion people, Less than 2% of Africans have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, you know, with COVID-19 vaccine. And if, if you compare to, say, you know, the UK, Canada, you know, and some other, you know, richer Western nations, you see upwards of, say, 50% of the population have been vaccinated. And, and at this instance, it's, it's not like Africa is, doesn't have the money to buy the vaccine. But, you know, again, richer Western nations have bought up available vaccines and reserved, you know, several doses much, much more than the, you know, the, their populations require. So it's almost like Africa, we find ourselves between, you know, between a rock and a hard place. What do we do? We cannot get from COVAX, you know, the so-called uh, global facility for vaccine delivery. We cannot buy because it's been, it's been reserved by, you know, richer countries. And so, so what do we do? We, you know, we find ourselves in a very uncomfortable position at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned COVAX. So for our listeners, um, COVAX was developed by Gavi and the WHO and the CEPI kind of as like a, a method or a pillar to distribute more vaccines uh, globally. I, they had a goal, I believe, of distributing 2 billion by the end of 2021. So um, doctor, how do you think COVAX has helped and how has it failed? Mm. Okay, so I think, in, uh, first of all, we need to be thankful to COVAX in this situation because, you know, the 2% population we're talking about is because of COVAX. But then if we look at how COVAX was set up and the decisions COVAX made, has made so far, that, you know, those things are also colonial because, uh, and I'm quoting another one of my fellow country women, Dr. Ayoade Alakija. Uh, the co-chair of the African Union Vaccine Delivery Mechanism. She said that it's colonial because when COVAX was being set up, nobody came to African leaders to say, what do you guys want? How should this happen? You just assumed that, well, yet again, right. Africa is a poor relation. So whatever you give to Africa, Africa will have to make do with it. Because how, do you, how did COVAX come to the decision that they would deliver just 20% of vaccine to Africa and other and parts of Asia and Latin America, when you need up to 70% to achieve herd immunity. So that, that just shows you that as, as good as COVAX is, uh, for at least helping us meet whatever populations were vaccinated, uh, its, it's set up, its, its processes have been colonial. And that's why, you know, people are also saying that, look, going forward, uh, there's something we can do now because, I mean, this particular situation will find out, so we have to find a way out of it. But uh, this won't be the last pandemic. So going forward for the next pandemic, it has to be a global effort. Everybody has to be at the table. Africa has to be at the table. You know, Africa cannot be an afterthought in what you think Africa needs after the decisions are made. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Every, especially because of the size of the population, like it's really disappointing and shocking that Africa wasn't at the table and the decisions are being made for, for people instead of with people. I really, yeah, that is definitely something you would have think we, you would have thought we would have already learned from past mistakes, but clearly we haven't. Um, and I was actually reading, um, one of your recent articles about how you're fully vaccinated. I believe is it with AstraZeneca, but the EU Mm -hmm. still won't let people with AstraZeneca um, in as of right now. So is there even vaccine inequity with respect to brands of vaccines themselves, mm. would you say? Mm. I mean, definitely going by the, the action of the EU through the uh, uh, COVID-19 Green Pass, it, it didn't just make sense when I saw the news article before I wrote that piece. Um, because if we start from the beginning, the EU is one of the largest contributors to COVAX. So the vaccine that you ship to Africa, Latin America, and Asia, you contributed the most to it. Exactly. Now the same vaccine, <laughs> the same vaccine is 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 um, Oxford AstraZeneca, made from the same ingredient that compared to the ones that are made in the UK and the other parts of the EU, and because the one that we took was produced by the Serum Institute of India, which by the way is the world's largest manufacturer of vaccines. You know, now after several months, you're not saying that, oh, sorry, guys, that one that you took, we don't really, we, we don't like that. You, you know, you can't come into our domain because you took a vaccine that we shipped to you. And, and I find it mind-blowing because it just shows that whoever came up with that policy didn't think it through. Uh, because there are several ramifications to this. Apart from the fact that I feel bad that, well, I'm fully vaccinated. If I want to travel to the EU, I can't get into some of the EU countries. It's also the fact that this can lead to further vaccine hesitancy. People who already felt that, look, you know, there are, there are conspiracies against the vaccine. The EU, through that EU Green Pass, is giving them more arsenal to keep spreading misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, I totally agree. That's such an excellent point. We're even seeing that here um, in Canada and in Toronto, I work as a pharmacist giving vaccines and we've had patients cancel because they, we only have Moderna in stock and they need to, they really want Pfizer. So we're really mm-hmm. seeing that here with that, that kind of like misinformation spreading when we know that the vaccines that we have available here, um, AstraZeneca, Moderna and Pfizer, um, yeah. Even against the Delta variant, they all significantly reduce risk of death and hospitalization. Um, so just having that rule in place by the EU, I think definitely can increase, as you were saying, some um, hesitancy surrounding which vaccine to get. If, for example, if AstraZeneca is the only vaccine available, um, some people might not want to get yeah. it, whereas that could be really helpful in, in lowering the, the spread of the virus itself. So I definitely agree and it's super yeah. unfortunate and hopefully things will change go ahead sorry no no I, I was just about to say that well i think this is also about beginning to change because because of this pushback from different quarters uh mm-hmm. at least france one of the one of the eu countries that didn't recognize covid shield which is the astrazeneca brand we're talking about has yeah. also not recognized it so Good, if you have okay. COVID shield, you can travel to France. So I hope that more EU countries would come yeah. to their senses and really, you know, uh, reverse that decision. Absolutely. I hope so as well. 
Yeah. And what do you think? So um, what are some of the main other barriers or drivers of vaccine hesitancy, do you think, I guess, with respect to COVID-19 specifically, Mm. and then kind of in general? Mm. So um, speaking about Nigeria, and uh, and I think by extension also some African countries, religion is a big deal, if I'm being honest. Religion is a big deal uh, because even uh, when you hear people say they don't want to take it, they don't have any particular reason. If you dig further, you find out that it's based on what the pastor said, you know, said in church that they shouldn't take it for whatever spiritual reasons. Um, So I think that's, that's the greatest reason why People don't, you know, are not taking the vaccine. Uh, they can't really give you any concrete, you know, scientific basis for that. Um, and that's why, for me, you know, I think that's also a major lesson from this pandemic. That uh, next time, if you're if we're planning a group to manage the pandemic for the country, religious leaders have to be part of it, so that you know, so that they can put out the information for, for their people. Um, but but I also think that um, in Nigeria, if you look at um, uh, I think some level of hesitancy in Nigeria is actually due to access. Uh, because what I've seen happen is that health workers wait for people to come and take the vaccine in the health facilities. But that is a challenge, especially if you consider that the bulk of our economy in, in Nigeria, as well as Africa, is in the informal sector. So people earn on a daily basis. A woman is selling tires in the market. People are hawking things you know, at traffic lights. They can't leave that to go and take the vaccine, you know. So I, I think that uh, if if we really dig further, we'll find out that some of the people that are not taking the vaccine are given very you know those reasons why they are not taking it. If we take the vaccines to them, they will take the vaccine, you know, because it's much more convenient, um, you know, simply because they cannot leave, you know, their daily where they get their daily bread from to go and take the vaccine. That well. Even their pastor is telling them that they shouldn't take in the first place. Um, so I, 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 I want to see that going forward in Nigeria and across African countries, we'll be much more proactive, take the vaccines to people, don't wait until they come to the facilities. Yeah, that is such a, an excellent point. Um, because if, you, if you're at work and you're making a living, you can't just leave and travel how many miles away to get a vaccine mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then you might be sick the next day there's a lot to consider so um maybe ha- yeah. have do they have any like mobile vaccine clinics has that mm-hmm. um do those exist mm. well i mean they, um they do but it's not formal so okay. even for me when i took my first when i took my first dose uh we reached out to the primary health care center you know okay. and informed them that you know we we're about 22 in the office and everybody was willing to take so it made sense for them to come and give us as a block. Uh, so those are the kind of outreaches and code that happens, okay. but it's not very formal, you know, uh, right. for this, for COVID. But when you consider other vaccinations, you know, we, we usually do outreach, outreaches for, for, say, polio, for measles, for DPT. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we're not doing outreaches for, for COVID-19. Yeah, like maybe it would be interesting to see if they did that and to see how, if the numbers would rise with respect mm-hmm. to, to vaccinations, especially if that those kind of programs have worked in the past with other vaccines. Yeah. So do you think, like, what are some other, I guess, potential solutions or next steps that we can make to improve vaccine equity going forward? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, I mean, we, we've spoken about, you know, um, um, 
so th this is a pandemic. A pandemic affects every country. Um, and I think that if you look at issues around, say, what the EU did with the EU green, with the green pass, uh, I think we need to we need to have the World Health Organization in really leading this this response or response of pandemics. Because I think what is happening is that the richer Western nations are not listening to WHO. Only again, poorer nations are listening to WHO. So I want to see that you know WHO is accorded that respect as a global body. You know that you know that coordinates um, health interventions going forward. Um, you know, so that if whatever what so WHO has, has approved about eight different COVID nineteen vaccines. So ideally, once you take that vaccine, once you take any of the eight vaccines, you know you should be able to travel anywhere as far, as long as you're fully vaccinated. Sure. So I want to see that happen, and um, and you know, um, I think I also need to give some knock on on African leaders um, because. Uh, the estimate is that is that about fifty billion dollars are lost due to illicit financial outflows from the continent. Oh, wow! Oh every God. year, every year, that's fifty billion dollars. And when I think about it, I'm like, just imagine if we had fifty billion dollars set aside for epidemics on the continent. I mean, we will not be running after anybody. We will be manufacturing our vaccines. No, you know, yeah. do you understand? So yeah. African leaders must step up, improve governance, stop those illicit financial outflows and ensure that, you know, those funds are channeled properly, you know, uh, because I think one thing that is very clear to everybody is that, you know, uh, and this was the title of my first TEDx talk, without health, we have nothing. COVID-19 has shown us that. So we need to invest more in epidemic preparedness and make sure that, you know, as a continent, we're not we're not always, you know, uh, depending on richer Western nations to sort us out. Because we have the funds, but the funds are just being stolen. Yeah, definitely. I didn't realize that that was, it was 50, 50 million, you said? That's billion, B. Billion, oh my gosh. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, every year, by the way. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah, if mm -hmm. a fraction of that money was used towards pandemic preparedness, that would be so helpful. <laughs> yeah, oh my absolutely. Goodness. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so, yeah, I've, I was reading um, an article earlier this week that mentioned, I think as of June 2021, like um, yep. nations in the global north, they secured like over 8.1 billion doses of all the COVID-19 vaccines. Meanwhile, um, mm -hmm. like other countries in the global south only had like, a, like 2 billion doses. And when you look at the, like the populations, it, it doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. Like, for example, I think Canada, we had like 10, over 10 doses per person, whereas in India, they had mm -hmm. like 0 0.8 doses per person, which it just doesn't, it doesn't add yeah. up. It doesn't make sense. And I know Canada, yeah. I believe they're, we're donating like some vaccines soon, but mm -hmm. is there anything mm -hmm. else that you think that countries like Canada should do um, to offer assistance? Mm. Mm. So, I mean, I think, you know, Canada, you know, has reserved upwards of 400 million doses. The population of Canada is 38 million. So really what Canada needs is probably to vaccinate, fully vaccinate everybody. All the 38 million people is about 76 million doses. So the, 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 the other 324 million doses have to be given to COVAX. Sure. Because there's no, I mean, you don't, you only need two doses. Once you're fully vaccinated, that's it. You know, so I think Countries like Canada, the UK, the UK has also reserved about four, above, above 440 million doses. 
the population of the UK is about 66 million. So they have to give up those excess doses. And I'm grateful to President Biden, who has also given, you know, um, um, committed about 500 million doses, you know, to be distributed through COVAX and other, other mechanisms. But, um, but most importantly, this should never happen again. Um, once there's a pandemic, it affects everybody. It's not like Ebola that would just say in West Africa, three countries, and, you know, you know, are you managing it within those three countries? But this is affecting everybody. This has affected the global, you know, economy, you know, businesses and exactly. all. Um, you know, so, um, but I think the only way forward now is that the excess doses you have reserved, please give them up. And to be For honest, sure. Africa is also willing to buy. Uh, the chairperson of the Africa, um, uh, one of the um, committees of the African Union on Vaccine Delivery, Strive Masiyiwa, from Zimbabwe, who is also a billionaire, by the way, you know, uh, participated in a meeting by the Milken School of Public Health in D.C. about two, three weeks ago. And, you know, he, he just, he was very open about the frustrations he's faced. You know, even as far back as 2020, trying to negotiate to buy, Africa has the money to buy. Africa cannot buy. So even if, you, even if you know, countries like Canada, the U.K. don't want to give up those doses for free, I'm sure Africa will be, will be willing to pay for it. But definitely they have to give it up because you don't need it for anything. It will just go by to expire and that's it. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. And just for our listeners, is there anything that just individual people can do to help improve vaccine equity? Like any organizations they can uh, promote as platforms? So I, I think, I think you know, uh, individuals, you know, nonprofit organizations, really have to speak up more, especially, you know, individuals and NGOs within the global south, within the global north. Because I think that if it's coming from people like you in Canada, organizations in Canada speaking to the Canadian government, it will carry more weight than somebody like me, you know, uh, for different reasons. I mean, you know, they are your leaders. You elect them into office. Uh, there are political issues that may come out of this. So everybody just needs to chip in because it's, you know, it's, it's um, there's this, you know, one of my favorite Igbo words, you know, Igwebike, um, which means there is power in community. This will require a community, a, a communal effort, not just people from the global south always making the noise. But again, people within the global north need to speak up, hold their governments accountable, and let them realize that this is for the good of everybody. Because think about it. The variants that are coming up are simply because more people are getting infected, less people are getting vaccinated. So as long as you have that, those chances of more people getting infected and less getting vaccinated, you're going to have more variants coming up. And once, once those variants come up, those variants do not respect borders. <laughs> they, will have, they will find their way wherever it is that people travel. <laughs> so, so it's almost like it, it, it's in everybody's best interest you know, that this pandemic ends as quickly as possible. Yes, I definitely agree. And I really love... Um what you were saying about community and how the virus doesn't see borders. It, it's so true. We have these, these borders in place and these unique government systems in place, but we forget that that doesn't make, that doesn't really mean much to COVID-19, if, especially now that travel is, is kind of starting up again. And if we mm -hmm. don't get everyone vaccinated, the variants are going to, to multiply. Um, so I definitely, absolutely, I definitely <laughs> agree. Um, and we have actually a, a question from one of our followers. 
Um, so Sarabi asks, uh, Doctor, what are your thoughts on booster doses and vaccine equity? Hmm. Okay, so I mean, interestingly, I've been I've been following the news on the booster doses, and and I, when I wa watched uh, Dr. Fauci on CNN talking about it, you know, um, on one hand, US CDC, the FDA have said, look, I mean, we've not approved that yet because there is no reason as far as we're concerned. There's no scientific basis for that. But of course, Pfizer. It's a pharmaceutical company. They have to make profits. They say you need it. It's already been ordered in Israel and all. And, and I think that is also the strange thing about this pandemic. While others have not even been vaccinated, <laughs> some people are fully vaccinated and are talking about booster doses. You know, uh, listening to the WHO Dr. Tedros talk about this two days ago, in, you could really hear the pain in his voice. It doesn't make sense. And... I'm sure that, you know, maybe data will show later whether people need booster doses. And that's fine. We'll have to wait until then. But I think for now, we have to be preoccupied with making sure that everybody everywhere, you know, has equal chances of being vaccinated and not some people being fully vaccinated and taking booster doses while others have not taken at all. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't seem fair that someone in, can have three doses of a vaccine while someone else has none just because of where they were born and where they live. It doesn't seem fair at all. Um, yeah. I definitely agree. And um, I just wanted to say a really big thank you from our entire team. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated it. And just me right now, I feel like I've learned so much and it's been a really big honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for, for joining all the way from across the world. Um, and do you mind just telling our listeners where they can find you online or on social media? Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Lauren. It's really my pleasure to be part of this. And by the way, my second daughter, Chimamanda, is eight years old. Oh, okay. As I said, she's seven. I'm sure she will not be happy. <laughs> she's, she's eight years old. Eight. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, I'm on Twitter uh, at Ekema, E-K-E-M-M-A. I'm also on Instagram at um, Health Evangelist. And um, on Facebook and LinkedIn, if I suffer, you know, uh, you can find me on any of those platforms. We'll add all of those um, social media and your website link to our description of this podcast. And we just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. Um, and remember to follow us as well on social media at infectious underscore info. Thank you, everyone. Mm -hmm.